1 Corinthians chapter 10, chapter, er, chapter 1, verses 10 through 18 will be our um, focus this morning. Um, and we'll be looking at, uh, title of the study this morning, A Body Divided. A Body Divided. I know it may be hard for some to believe. Brace yourselves for this. But all churches have problems. That's an all-knowing response. You know it as well as I do. Some of you, some of us, know it all too well. All churches have problems. Why is that, by the way, rhetorical question? Because we're sinners. That is exactly right. We are sinners. Really, I praise God that He has equipped us as sinners, redeemed, saved by grace. Amen. He has made available to us and equipped us with all of the tools necessary for sinners to work together in the body of Christ and not be divided. We don't have an excuse for sinful division and dissension and schisms in the congregation. As the Apostle Paul tells us in God's Word this morning, in this morning's text, Paul is striking out against division in the local congregation of the church there in Corinth. And this is for you and me as well today. When it comes to the church, division is wrong wherever we find it in the congregation. Okay? This is to be contrasted with necessary areas of separation from the world, separation from those who are not of like faith and practice or teach a false doctrine, but division amongst the body of Christ on unconsequential matters or sinful reasons driven by pride and selfishness. Division is wrong wherever we find it in the church. And this passage of Scripture has application to nearly all cases of division. Covers a widespread of them. Most divisions within the local congregation today are, are not over matters of faith and practice. Rather, most of the matters and, and um, cases of division within local congregations amongst believers in the body of Christ are rather the result of pride, of selfishness, that leads to believers in conflict. You remember Paul is writing from Ephesus. And as verse 11, as well as other verses in 1 Corinthians, reminds us, he was made aware of conflicts and problems and divisions and matters of, of, of wrong doctrine that was going on in the congregation in Corinth. Remember we spent some time and we studied the geography, the culture that was going on in Corinth and in the area that Christians were, were susceptible to. Paul is writing from Ephesus. Verse 11 tells us, for, if, uh, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. 
by the way, this is not the only form of knowledge of the contentions. Not only was it from several credible sources, Paul was careful to understand these things and to weigh these things before writing, but also we'll see later on in our study, later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul recognizes in this letter that the church of Corinth had actually written to the Apostle Paul with questions and concerns asking for help in knowledge of trouble in, in knowledge of trouble as well. And the problem, as Paul makes it readily clear to us in our text this morning, was division, dissension, a lack of unity. That was the problem that he, right out of the introduction, right out of establishing who the church was and all of our, our newfound position in Christ after salvation, he addresses this issue of unity, lacking unity and division. And by the way, um, in case <laughs> you think the local church has no selfish, sinful believers, and thus no conflict, let me remind you. No, let the Word of God remind us in James, if you'll turn over there for a minute. Put your finger in 1 Corinthians. We're going to come right back. But go over to James, please, for a moment, lest you think I'm coming down too harsh, or Paul is coming down too hard on the congregation of believers. Speaking too much about being sinners this morning. In case you may be thinking along those lines, let, let's let God's Word remind us about where conflict and and, 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 and things like this come from. The Bible reminds us that the congregation is made up of depraved sinners. In James chapter 4, particularly in verses 1 and 2, says, From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Sadly, fighting and quarreling exists throughout all ages in life. All ages. It's not just children in the nursery that fight over a toy. Unfortunately, it's adults that fight over ministry. It includes teens that fight over obedience to authority or submission to each other. It's all ages, in all ages of time, in Corinth and in Mesa. We are not immune to the possibility of being um, uh, involving ourselves in conflict through pride and selfishness. Now, for the one that thinks a call for unity is no big deal, oh, we, we need to be united, a call unity, okay, big deal, let's move on with our study here. Why do we have, if, if that is somebody, if there's somebody that thinks that, let me encourage you to, to consider answering a question. Why do we have passages like Acts chapter 2 in the Bible? Do you remember the significance of Acts chapter 2? The day of Pentecost, the, the beginning of the church, the indwelling of the Spirit, and that the, ch the church's inception beginning to grow and to increase. It was a big deal. It was a very big deal. Those people had are noted in Acts chapter 2, the early believers were noted as having a singleness of heart. They were noted furthermore of having one mind. They met together daily. They shared in common love. They had favor 
with all the people. And, the, and as a result of this, as a result of the unity of the believers there, the Lord continued and added to the church daily such as should be saved. The Lord was pleased, and the Lord used, and the Lord blessed, and the Lord grew the congregation as they were united in a singleness of heart. Unity is a big deal. Unity is vital in the body of Christ. The problem in the church of Corinth was division due to, specifically in this area, Paul draws out specifically The vision was due to allegiance to man. Allegiance to following one man or another. Or likening to one leadership style as opposed to another. I like this person because, well, I like this person because, well, I work well with this person because, I don't like that leadership because. And all these divisions and cliques and separation and and shredding of the body of Christ was taking place in Corinth. Let's work through this passage together. I'd like to draw out some things here. You're going to see the problem. You're going to see some questions from the Apostle Paul, and then you're going to see Paul present a solution to these things. It's a very orderly flow of thought, and the Apostle Paul makes that very helpful for us. In the situation found at Corinth here, you're going to see the problem, the questions, and the solution. All the while, though, as we work through this in the moments we have left, remember that The Corinthian church was not any more susceptible to conflict and divisions than we are at Calvary here today. Still believers, still in the world, expected to live counter-culture Christianity in a world that constantly is working to convince us to please me, myself, and I, and forget about everybody else. Firstly, we see the divisions of this body. This is the problem. Paul points this out. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine being in Corinth and this letter being read? Ooh, people would be hanging their heads, hiding. Probably didn't have pews. Probably meeting in the house at the time. But, you know, I just need to get out of here for a second. I'll come back later when this letter's done, right? And Paul just right there, right between the eyes, hits him hard with the truth. He says in verse 10, Paul says this, now I beseech you, brethren, We're going to stop there for just a second. I beseech you there, brethren, verse 10. The word beseech is not like a, listen to me here, people. That kind of hurt. Here, how about this? There you go. Listen here. I'm going to beat you over the head. That's not what beseech is saying here. The Apostle Paul, though he needed to speak to them, he needed to speak to them clearly. And the Apostle Paul needed to address the matter as God led him in the apostolic power that God gave him, the Spirit led him. The beseech is communicating a urging. Beseech is communicating if if somebody was to implore you or to more pointedly exhort somebody in a comforting, encouraging picture this. It's as if through his writing, the Apostle Paul put his arm kindly over the shoulder of the congregation and beseeched them You must see what you are doing. Listen to me, the Apostle Paul says. The point is he comes alongside them to encourage them, not to beat them over the head. 
By the way, in Philemon, there's a good passage that reminds us that there are times the Apostle Paul wanted to just beat him over the head. You go, how dare you say that, Pastor? Look at Philemon if you, were, if you wanted to. Philemon verses 8 and 9 in that small passage there. Paul says he really could come down hard, but instead he communicates, I'm going to beseech you instead. It's the idea of the Apostle Paul saying, you know, I could really beat you over the head with a big stick right now to knock some sense into you. Wake up, Christians! But instead, I beseech you by the mercies of God. Right? This is the tone the Apostle Paul is addressing them in. And that was always, that has always been the character of Paul because we know law demands, but love and grace beseeches. And so this is the tone of love and comfort and exhortation that the Apostle Paul was speaking to the believers there in Corinth. And the word translated divisions, we continue reading, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. The word divisions there in verse 10 is, 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 is um, in the original word schisma in the Greek. Schisma, and it's where we get the English word to have schisms in the, in the church. The English transliteration of the Greek word schisms. It means to, to rip or to tear something apart. This is some strong language that Paul, is, that Paul is exhorting the believers in. He's saying, listen, listen, believers. Do you realize? They knew. He's saying, listen to me. There are, there are conflicts and there are divisions in the body of Christ. And when the body of Christ is torn apart, it is useless. What are you doing? There ought not to be these schisms and these divisions. Evidently, there were fractions and a divisive spirit in the body of Corinth. And the Apostle Paul sought to address this and say, knock it off, believers. You have not called to be divided. You have been called to be united together for Christ. I brought something with me this morning. I brought a, a, a garment, a shirt. I've worn this shirt a lot before. It's like a dress shirt, nice, white, beautiful dress shirt, right? Well, beautiful. Guys don't wear beautiful things. Perfectly useful, button-up, nice collar, wear it to church. It's a great shirt. It's useful. Hold your breath. Yeah, it's a good shirt, wasn't it? How good is a shirt now? <laughs> How good is it? Not! Well, I might use it for oil in the shop now, but uh, it's rather useless. I'll pick up those buttons later, don't worry. A little stunned this morning, aren't we? What in the world would Pastor tear up a perfectly good shirt in the middle of church Sunday morning? Do you realize that this is the same exact shock and strength that the Apostle Paul is using in this passage? Speaking of the use, the treatment, and the conduct of the congregation in Corinth. A once useful body of Christ, torn and useless because of a lack of unity and singleness of mind. I can tell you right now, I will not be putting that shirt back on and, and, and wearing that again. It's useless. A perfectly good shirt. 
rendered useless because it has been rent and torn and divided. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying about the congregation. Do you realize, maybe you've heard this before, and let me call your attention back to it. Do you remember when the garments of our Lord and Savior were, were divided? Divided amongst the soldiers? And there was one garment that was not divided. Do you remember that? It was purple, and it was reported to be seamless. The Roman soldiers divided the earthly belongings of Jesus, but they gambled for his robe rather than to tear it. Do you know why? Do you know why? These were hardened men. These were soldiers. And yet, even in their hardness, these soldiers recognized and saw the beauty of the robe and they refused to tear it because it would then lose its value. It would become less, less worth, uh, it would become worthless. I've heard that the early church used this garment as an illustration of the unity of the church. To divide the church was to tear or to destroy something of great value and beauty that belongs to Jesus Christ. The body of Christ belongs to Jesus, not to me and not to you. And when there is division and when there are schisms and there is a lack of unity, we are rendering useless the body of Christ for the glory of God. Divisions and quarreling in the church hinder its effective proclamation of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we are curbing when we're fighting with each other. Paul then sums up the divisions in verse 12. Divisions over even different leadership styles. Do you know one of the greatest excuses that believers use today is that we have a personality conflict, so we just can't minister together. We have different personalities, so I need to go somewhere else and so on and so forth. Baloney. Oh, I'm not saying we don't have different personalities. I mean, look at me, right? (laughs) Don't look too hard. It's scary. But God has equipped us as believers to work to edify one another and to have a higher view of others and to not lift ourselves up but others. Even as Jesus has made an example of it in Philippians chapter 2 in coming to earth to serve others, being deity. We read this together earlier. Paul sums this up, the first there in verse 12. We'll read through the verse and then we'll point these out. Verse 12 says, Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, which is Peter, and I of Christ. Can you pick up on the pious individuals that would have said this? I follow Paul. This group may have taken the attitude that Paul started this church. And so I am a follower of the founder of this church. I am, the, Paul is the one I'm going to follow. He will always be our leader. No one will replace him. We'll call these folks, for lack of better terms this morning, the traditionalists, the loyalists, those who follow a man. I follow Apollos. 
Paul points out amongst the congregation. These people may have put great emphasis on knowledge of the Scripture. Apollos was known, as we see recorded in Acts chapter 18, 24 and on, 24 and 25, we see that Apollos was mighty in the, in the use of the word. And so we'll call these people, those who, those who um, uh, we'll call them the Bible intellectuals. Those who say, well, I follow only those who have a great and deep and rich knowledge of God's word. Those are the one I follow, not the other leaders or the others that the Lord has placed within the congregation. And then yet there's more. I follow Cephas, which is to be Peter. This group may have put great emphasis on the church and were taking the attitude that maybe Peter had been given the keys to the kingdom and that he was, a, um, through his preaching and, and, and through being instituted, the, uh, instituted being involved in the institution of the church at Pentecost, and they would follow him and him alone because clearly God was moving greatly in him and his ministry. They may have been great, air quotes here this morning, church men and women, but nothing more, not going much further. And then finally we get to some that say, I follow Christ. I follow Christ. It doesn't sound all that bad. We all, we're followers of Christ, right? But to the point that these folks may have been piously saying, we don't need anyone or anything else but Jesus Christ. For salvation, that's right, but guess what? Jesus Christ has established and placed authority and leadership and structure throughout the body of Christ as well. This is what the Apostle Paul said. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. These are the divisions and the, and the separation and the schisms and the tearing apart of the body. And so Paul exhorted the local church to speak the same thing. Speak the same thing. I've shared this before. Have you, any of you ever played or led a game like this? Teens, listen to this. Have you ever played a game where you have a bunch of teens on one side of the room and a bunch of teens on the other side of the room, and you have a partner? So it's teams of two people, right? So your partner's on one side of the room, and you're on the other side of the room. And then we blindfold them all, okay? And then the, the team has to come up with an animal noise. Cow, a chicken, you know, whatever it may be, a dog barking or something. And just by making those animal noise, all at once, a room full of all sorts of different noises, you have to try and find the other person. You're blindfolded. All the noises all at once. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? When everybody's speaking something different at once, it's confusing. It's not helpful. It doesn't unite the body. When we're saying this and you're saying that and I want this and she wants that and he wants this back and forth, it is working to separate the body as opposed to the Apostle Paul saying, I exhort them, he's exhorting them to speak the same thing. This doesn't mean that we all have the exact same words and we all sound the very same. Praise God for that, or the choir wouldn't sound as good as it does when we sing, right? Praise God for the difference in voices and the difference in personalities. But the goal of speaking the same thing is a lot more likely when we heed the words of 1 Peter. Save 1 Corinthians. Go over to 1 Peter for a minute, please. Let me take you on a little field trip. 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 11. 1 Peter 4.11. These, these are the words that we need to pay attention. These are the words that we need to heed. 1 Peter 4.11 says, If any man speak, 
let him speak his own opinion, no matter what the cost. It does not say that in the scriptures. Instead, the Bible says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Furthermore, it says, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. Tremendous passage. When we live and minister together as a body with a passage like this in mind and understanding and working out, this is when speaking the same thing becomes much more likely amongst the congregation. Too many today will use the pulpit. I'm talking about just even outside this church. And broader evangelicalism will use a pulpit to relay and assert opinions or to rely in the pulpit ministry or preaching ministry on our own strength and our own knowledge and our own ability rather than the power of the Spirit of God and the power of the Word of God rightly divided. Paul's calling us as a church to get our focus right to remain united, to be, have a singleness of mind. The Greek word translated perfectly joined together. We are to continue reading this passage. In, in verse 10, back up to verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Perfectly joined together in verse 10 is used actually, the same original language word is used also in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21. And if you look at the original word there, you understand, if you look at Matthew 21, it helps us understand something at a deeper level. Matthew 21 is describing the mending of nets. Fishing nets. You know what I'm talking about? Mending them. If you get a hole, the fish get out. So it's mending and tying these nets that were once frayed, pulled apart, right across the rocks or torn. And so they would sit there and tie and mend these nets together. This is the very same word that's used in Matthew 4.21 that's used in this passage to be translated in the English now as perfectly joined together. The mending of nets. So Paul is asking Christians, he's beseeching Christians to mend their differences and come to a united harmony of view. Wow. Mending together as we would mend nets. This is what God is calling the church to do. Paul's been laying out the problem. He's been identifying what's going on, and then he asks several questions here. We continue on in the passage. If you look down to verse 13, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 13, with boldness, with even a hint of pointed sarcasm, Paul tersely asked several questions to which the answer to each of these questions is very obvious to us. Easy Questions, hard questions with an easy answer, all right? The first in verse 13 is this. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? This means, has has Christ been split up into different parts, given to different groups? Would he want his body, the church, to be fragmented? The image of the shirt being torn in two and being a perfectly useful shirt being torn in half and unused, unusable comes back to mind. And this is what divisions 
and a, a lacking of a singleness of mind and unity causes in the church. And so Paul, in this, in this almost sarcasm, sarcastic tone, he knows their answer would be, yes, of course, we do not want to see Christ. Christ would not want to see his body divided. And he says, is Christ divided? Of course Christ, Christ is not divided. Should the parts of our body be divided? You and I know the answer to that one, right? Children, if, if, if your arm was to be removed from your body this morning, I know this is a little graphic, hang on, it would not work anymore for you, would it? No, it would not. It would be useless. Our body's meant to be joined together so that it functions and works together. It's not outside of the simple understanding the Apostle Paul was talking here about the body of Christ. Was Paul crucified for you, he asks? They know the answer. Paul directs them to the cross. He focuses on the atonement here, which is for all who believe. Paul indicates that the divisions were improper, that they were sinful because human leaders could never take the place of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so for the church and the congregation, these groups and these cliques and these schisms, these divisions, to claim that, oh, I follow Christ, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos, is in effect saying that these men were as important and needed as Christ's death on the cross. And he says, Paul wasn't crucified for you. Apollos wasn't crucified for you. Nobody else was. It was Jesus Christ alone. The word crucified emphasizes the most important thing our Savior did. He died for you and me. He died for the sins of the world. Paul, later on in his letter in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 3, very clearly lays this out. He did not do it any more for one Christian than the other Christian. He didn't do it for anyone else in the world, for one sinner or another. No Christian has a greater claim upon Jesus Christ than any other. Christ has died for all. He continues and asks another question, one final question. Paul says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Looking at verse 13. They had been baptized, the body of Christ had been baptized in the name of Christ after salvation and the, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. They had an in obedience followed the Lord in believer's water, immersion, baptism. And Paul is not against baptism here. And there have been some that take this text and say, well, see, clearly, you know, water, water baptism. Paul's against that here. No, that, that would be a wrongful treatment of the text. Paul was not renouncing baptism here, but rather affirming that he did not practice it with the purpose of recruiting personal followers or groupies. I didn't baptize some. I'm thankful I didn't baptize some because some might in their immaturity say, well, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. And he did not want that to take place. And then in verses 14 through 16, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus besides I know not whether I baptized any other. Paul makes a statement that some have tried to downplay the obedience and importance of baptism. 
And, and, and we see that. Paul makes this statement, and in this statement, some try to downplay that. Paul is not against this. It is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. Listen, not baptism. It is the power of God, the power of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the repentance and faith and trust in Him and His work for the forgiveness of sin that is salvation, not baptism. Finally, the church's expected response. The Apostle Paul leads in this letter, in the flow of the letter here, there's a, there's a natural expectation, a natural desire of response for the believers to his exhorting them in these areas. Look back at verse 10 for a moment, will you please? Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul urged them to unite in their thinking, in their thought process, in their ways of reasoning together to arrive at a unified goal. You know, those who have the same mind are often likely to speak the same thing. Those of you that have been married for a number of years, you know how uh, a spouse can complete your sentences? Or like my wife does, I think she can read through to my soul sometimes, right? Not really, seems that way. I don't know anyway. (laughs) Times that I know what you're thinking, no you don't. Are you thinking this? Yeah. Wives are so good at that. Why are we so slow, men, right? (laughs) You know, when, when people think the same way, it is often natural that we say and speak and do the same things. Paul is not calling here for all Christians to necessarily sing, talk, and say in the same sound, in the same style, and look the same way. It's a difference between unity and unanimity. There's a difference there in understanding that we are all different, but we are working together as one unified body with the same purpose and the same goal of seeing God glorified and not us. The same mind we should have, by the way, What is it we should have? What is the same mind? Well, the same mind is is the mind of Christ. We've just read that together. Look back at at Philippians chapter 2. Remind yourself of this. Philippians chapter 2, the first five verses even. We won't even reread all 11. We see in the first five verses, Paul is reminding them, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind, here it is, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. This kind of same mind results in, it results in, consolation. 
And the body of Christ has the same mind. It results in consultation, comforting one another. It results in fellowship. It results in affection. It results in mercy. It results in grace. It results in forgiveness. Those are some of the many results of having the same mind in the body of Christ. But this kind of same mind requires some things. The kind of same mind in the congregation, the body of Christ, requires a lowliness of mind. It requires thinking highly than ourselves of others. It requires concern, genuine, heartfelt concern for others. As the church develops the mind of Christ, the more likely we will be of one mind. Imagine a triangle this morning. You know the shape of a triangle, three equal sides. The point at the top, the point's on the sides. If the top of the triangle was Jesus Christ, and it's our goal, and it's our effort, and we have one, bo- one part of the body over here and one part of the body over here, it's you and me. And with our goal and our effort fixed upward on Jesus Christ, and as we mature and we grow closer to Jesus Christ, look what's naturally happening. We're coming together. Maybe it's an oversimplification of the reality of it. But nonetheless, it's an excellent word picture to realize that when we are having a singleness of mind, of glory to God, and growing to be more like Him in our responses together, guess what's naturally happening? We are growing closely together. And by the way, friends, that's the same thing in marriage. It's the same thing in relationships. We are all to have the same judgment. This is the the understanding here of this is the same knowledge or the same process of reasoning things. The same way in which we think through things. The, the, The means in order to get to the end. Finally, Paul warns us that it could obscure the message of the cross by flaunting our own intellect, our own will, our own eloquence over following Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, and oh, the Apostle Paul was wise and well-trained. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. The simplicity of the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul depended on the simple message of the cross, even though he had a great intellect. He was, he's not known for being a great preacher, He had an educated, wise, and sharp intellect. The message of the cross is, is absolute foolishness from the standpoint of the world. Verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The academic intellectual, elite, don't get the gospel. It is not those things that are needed to get the gospel. But those who are saved realize the power of the preaching of the cross. So let me end with a couple of thoughts of challenge for you. We'll be done. 
we shouldn't be surprised when. Let me encourage you in a couple of things that we as Christians should not be surprised about. Okay? We should, as a body of Christ, the congregation at Calvary Baptist Church, individual believers, we should not be surprised when people don't speak the same thing. It shouldn't. <gasps> what? The congregation's divided. How can this happen? We shouldn't be surprised when that does take place. But instead, we should expect it and take time to work on growing together the mind of Christ as a congregation. We also should not be surprised when people don't have the same mind. Remember that time I was telling you about how my wife knows a lot of the things I'm thinking about, or seemingly does? Because a lot of times, I think I know what my wife's thinking about, and most of the time I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it happens from believers, too. People, we shouldn't be surprised when we don't have the same mind, but instead develop the virtue of patience and love toward one another regardless. Finally, we shouldn't be surprised when people don't have the same judgment, the same disposition, the same opinions. But instead, we should work towards decreasing so that others may increase. Let me ask you a question this morning. Don't answer this out loud, but prayerfully consider. I challenge you in prayer to consider answering this question before the Lord. You ready? Who are you following this morning? Who are you following this morning? We must strive to overcome division in the church. Would you ask the Lord to reveal to you whether your actions at present are working to divide the body of Christ or if your actions are working to build up the body of Christ. If these words are heard to hear this morning, let me boldly but in love encourage you that the Lord may be working on your heart right now. Would you prayerfully understand that God offers forgiveness a fresh start, and all the opportunity in the world to once again be part of building up the body as opposed to tearing it down and separating it all for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the example we see in the church of Corinth and the call for unity. Thank you for equipping us and making available to us all the tools necessary to see you glorified a body that's fitly working together, united with singleness of mind and heart. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.